Together for the first time. Tucker live in a DC studio. Don Lemon live from a New Orleans bar. The perfect duo for narcissistic opinionated commentary. Well, good evening. <laughs> I'm a bad person today. Oh, that's outrageous. I live my life to the fullest. I don't care what people think about me. I've been bothered in men's rooms. I do what I want because it's my life. Don't miss Lemon Tucker, buried in the darkest depths of cable TV. I, I always live my life to the very fullest. Lemon Tucker, sponsored by Bud Light. Thanks for sticking with us. Is that the phone? Telephone! Yeah, that was the phone. <sighs> you guys sound like you're ready for a show. The phone rang? You're not supposed to have your phone on. It's always ringing. Today is National Telephone Day. And I'm Alexander Graham Bell, inventor of the telephone. See, that's the problem. You're always on that stupid phone. You're always on the phone. Hey, happy National Telephone Day. Call me, call me, call me. Call me. Bye. Showtime. January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News special report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Citians must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riot? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. Professor Harvey K. My brother, he is a professor emeritus from the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. We're back for part two, my friends. Part two of our constant project of reclaiming the radical history of America. Taking back that progressive playbook, Professor K. We got it. It's a pretty damn good one, if we don't say so ourselves. And we are now coming back, recapping the presidential campaign of Marianne Williamson. So last week, we were able to discuss, give some context to the launch speech that was given. Professor K, you were there. Let's break down some of these policies, Professor K. And I do want to remind everyone that I was serious last week when I said to Hartzell, you and I need to pick up Josh Hawley's book when it comes out and spend an episode deconstructing his manhood. That's the title of the book, I think, Manhood or something like that. Well, I don't mean it to sound so threatening, Josh, if you're out there, but <laughs> seriously speaking, we're going to take you on for what you have to say about what it means to be a man. Absolutely. What does Marianne Williamson say about being an American, Professor K? Looked up and down this website, all the policy platforms. What gets you excited? You know, a lot of candidates, when they first launch, they don't put it all out right away. They sort of let it, I should say, drop every week. Little trickle. I will tell all of you this. I'm going to be very clear about it. There is something big coming in probably June, which is already part of her campaign. And that is, we're going to hear her speak on the real vision for the future. That I'm pretty sure. But if you look at her website, the agenda is clear, and it's a very developed agenda. The thing that I'd like to take up a little bit after we go through the generic stuff is labor and the economy. 
So listen to this. She has on our website right now, Marianne2024.com. She's got an issues overview, but individually she has an anti-poverty plan, a climate action plan, crime prevention, criminal justice and legal reform, disability justice, empowered labor, food safety and security plans, gun safety plan, immigration justice, LGBTQIA plus rights plan, mass incarceration, Native American justice. She's got a plan on reparations, reproductive justice, and social security, plus the working economy, a whole health plan, a whole student plan, women's rights, a U.S. Department of Children and Youth, and also a U.S. Department of Peace. I'm not good at math, but that's a lot of stuff. It's really is like an explosion of stuff. I mean, this is a woman who's really thought it through and assigned her platform committee to build it out for her. And it's there. You know, I talked to the, what would you call it, her ideas committee or whatever, early on. I had no idea, no idea they were going to rend, they were going to offer this much this soon. Okay, so I'm impressed. The team really did a remarkable job. I will also note she's moving. She had a political strategist and a political director. She now has a campaign manager, Peter Dow, who himself has had quite a political trajectory, having started off on campaigns with the likes of neoliberals John Kerry and Hillary Clinton, and then moved over towards, I guess, the Bernie side of the equation. I don't know if he worked with Bernie or for Bernie. Did you notice anything about that? He did help champion Bernie in the 2020 campaign. Yeah, that's what, yeah. I don't believe it was in an official capacity, but it looks like a tilt to the left. Yeah, I mean, I had a conversation with him, and he's definitely, oh, let's make it less than tilt. He's definitely moving to the left. Hey, I love I, it. I look forward to having greater conversations with him. I'll be in New York this weekend, as a matter of fact. I think he and I might have a conversation there. Interesting life story in itself. Anyhow, empowered labor is the one that catches my eye as a labor unionist. And also because it's tough for a Democratic candidate, especially against an incumbent, garner labor support. That's going to be a challenge. But she's already been garnering support from young labor activists, the workers around the Starbucks campaign and things like that. Look forward, I think, soon maybe to a, a real TikTok episode on labor, which John Shelton and I have contributed a little bit to. When she said her social media team was going to turn this into a whole TikTok kind of event, I knew that I'd probably never get to see it. But uh, <laughs> let's look at empowered labor, the one that, to me, important, and I believe important for her. Union leaders are very skeptical of Democratic politicians these days, with good reason. And I think it's important for Marianne to make it very clear where she stands on the labor question. So this is what Marianne Williamson says on empowered labor, labor policy. Today's labor movement is an exciting expression of resistance to overreach by unfettered corporate forces. As president, I will not just protect workers, I will empower them. That's the key thing, really, because if you think about it, you think about this Biden administration, and I'm not going to go on and on about the Biden administration. I could do that from here to the next year, <laughs> because undeniably, they've had accomplishments. But think about this. He didn't go to bat when Bernie was fighting for the $15 an hour minimum wage. And that's like more than two years ago, outset of 2021. The other thing is, is that even though he changed the leadership at the NLRB, that's the National Labor Relations Board, he didn't manage a budget increase, which was created in 1935 by FDR signature, encouraged by Robert Wagner, New York Senator. In fact, it's called the Wagner Act. And that signature placed the federal government behind workers' efforts to organize. 
the role of the federal government through the NLRB was to guarantee workers the right to organize. Guarantee, that's a key word. That came under assault in the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947 when Republicans and conservative Democrats tried to bring an end to the NLRB, but literally did do damage to it. And both Lyndon Johnson and Jimmy Carter failed. In fact, in Jimmy Carter's case, he just turned his back on labor. Thus, 45 years of this class war on labor that I kind of referred to last week. So Marianne understands it's important not just to protect workers, but to empower them. And the reason I say that is think about these last six months. You know, everyone knows that Joe Biden got Congress to vote on a bill that would block railway workers from being able to strike. Why? Because the fact is that if they were going to strike in the autumn, it was going to completely throw the economy into a spin because Christmas was coming up. But that's not the point. That vote came at the end of what should have been a totally different story. When the question appeared, will railway workers not only get a wage, but will they start getting sick days? They don't have sick days. People don't realize that. That's inhuman, really, if you think about it. Well, anyhow, Biden clearly had communication of some sort with rail bosses and nothing happened. What he should have done is met with them and said, look, I'm going to save Christmas. If you don't give them the sick days and a reasonable salary, wage, whatever it is, increase, I'm going to nationalize the railways. Executive order for national security. And let's face it, the question of Christmas and its massive role in the economy that time of year, that's a national security question. He didn't do that. And thus, months go by, and he then asked Congress to literally disempower workers from their right to strike. So Marianne is clear. She's not going to just protect workers or seem to protect workers in Biden's case. I will empower them, right? And then she says, right after that quote, which you read beautifully, by the way, my father was a labor organizer with the CIO. He was part of the UAW's campaign to organize Ford plants in 1937, where men and women were brutally assaulted for trying to form a union. My grandfather worked on the Rock Island Railroad, taking my father to hear Eugene Debs speak when my dad was just a child. When I was growing up, my parents told me, if you cross a picket line, don't bother coming home. My brother worked for Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers, and the imprint of support for labor has stayed with us throughout our adult lives. Strengthening labor, she says, strengthens America. Then... She offers the specifics. Listen to this stuff. It's a long list, so I'll try to hit some highlights. First off, support labor rights for all workers. Blunt, labor rights for all workers. Hold corporate executives accountable for labor law violations. None of this letting them off the hook. CEO should be personally liable for unpaid wages and criminally liable for interference with workers' efforts to organize. Look, Bernie had Howard Schultz in a couple of weeks ago to testify to the Senate committee. I think it's the HELP committee, yep. Health, mm -hmm. Education, Labor, and... Pensions. Pensions, okay. Well, I gotta tell you, that's all well and good, but they should have had him in the court. They should have indicted him. He's already broken the law. He's been doing everything that would be illegal. You know, firing workers, doing this, this, and that to keep them from being able to organize. Marianne's gonna take it seriously, the role of president when it comes to the rights of workers and empowerment of workers and their unions. Next, strengthen National Labor Relations Board by increasing the agency's enforcement authorities and staffing to speed the process of issuing bargaining orders. Upgrade regional offices. In other words, she understands what needs doing. Next, end right to work for less laws. 
right to work, which block unionization and really empowers the bosses to deny workers the voice they are entitled to in the workplace. She says, end those laws. States must allow employers and unions to enter fair share agreements, collective bargaining agreements. Unions represent all the workers in their bargaining units, not just those in the union. Everybody who benefits from unions should support those unions and the tactics of starving out labor. End retaliation for workplace organizing. End strike replacements. A Williamson presidency will support all efforts to repeal the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947. I'm going to applaud that. Woo, absolutely. Okay. End captive audience intimidation meetings. Companies have resorted to meetings of fear that tell employees they will lose their jobs if they join a union. The Williamson administration will end those coercive tactics. Expand the definition of employee to include many workers currently treated as independent contractors. This is huge, Harvey. Uber, Lyft workers, DoorDash, these folks are not independent contractors. They deserve to be able to speak with a collective voice to their employers. End non-compete clause, end surveillance monitoring, ban employers from using surveillance software in the workplace, end lockouts. This is a long list, people, right? You with me? Protect rail workers by banning precision scheduled railroading to rein in the greed of rail barons. Mandate a two-man crew rule. By the way, I'd like to see the return of the caboose. I mean, this is bullshit that there's no cabooses on a train, if only for aesthetic purposes. Bring back the caboose. That's a hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, and she makes this really interesting point. Unions are the countervailing power to corporate power. Back in the 50s, the idea was you had business, you had labor, and you had the government. Government was the countervailing power to capital. Workers in unions were supposed to be the countervailing power in the workplace to the bosses. But on the grand scale of the American economy, countervailing powers are essential, okay? This is a hefty, a hefty lift. To finish that thought you just made, right now the way things are, it's the government just carrying the water of big business. Oh, Jesus, yeah, absolutely. As we saw in the railway workers' confrontations, it was basically the Biden administration were strike breakers. Strike breakers. They weren't out on strike yet, but they were breaking the possibility of a strike. Shameful. Absolutely shameful. Hey, do you want to talk about the anti-poverty plan? Because it's led with a quote from FDR. So I thought maybe that one might tickle your fancy. The anti-poverty plan. Poverty is not natural. It is a policy choice and we can end it. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The test of our progress is not whether we add more to the abundance of those who have much. It is whether we provide enough for those who have too little. I remember those lines, having read every one of his speeches, basically. And that's a crucial understanding on his part, really is. FDR is often thought of, and the New Deal is thought of as something to help lift the economy, but it was to empower workers. It was to combat poverty. And by the way, let's make it clear, from 1938 on, they not only went after the poverty question, they actually started reducing inequality. And from 1938 to 1974, we saw a decline in American inequality, just for the record. The Great Society, the War on Poverty, LBJ's Great Society. My book report in the seventh grade, Harvey, was what spurred my radical awakening. I always circle back whenever I see someone that mentions anti-poverty initiatives. You helped me expand my thought on this. You know, one of the reasons why the war on poverty and the Great Society didn't have the full effects it wanted is that, well, it didn't 
create the jobs it needed. That's right. Exactly. The New Deal included job creation and job encouragement, okay, and the empowerment of workers. Unfortunately, with LBJ, as much as the Great Society was a phenomenal effort, it did not include empowerment of workers and jobs for the unemployed or jobs for those who are coming out into the marketplace of jobs. I think it would be a smart idea if we read a little bit of her statement then, if you don't mind. So how about if you start reading, it is shocking. It is shocking that in the richest country in the world, well over a third of the American people are poor or near poor. Nearly 70% of Americans would struggle to meet an unexpected expense of $400, according to a report by the Federal Reserve. The poverty level is a $30,000 annual income for a family with two adults and two children. The U.S. Census Bureau reports that approximately 38 million people, Harvey, were poor in 2021. That's a shocking fact. A shocking fact. Well, it gets even more shocking. That means that more than one in nine Americans live below the poverty line. Poverty rates are higher for Black Americans and Native Americans, 19.5% and 27% respectively, compared to 8.1% for non-Hispanic whites. So when you include the near poor, the figures rise to get this, over 93 million people. That's about 29% of all people that have income below 200% of the poverty level. And she then says, at a time when D.C. politicians and lobbyists have waged a war against poor and barely middle-class Americans by chipping away at social safety net programs and permitting labor exploitation by the most profitable companies, we have the moral obligation to address the crisis of poverty in America. The U.S. is the wealthiest nation in the history of the world, yet poverty has not been solved. In fact, we haven't even made any serious improvements in the state of poverty in America over the last 50 years. Poverty, by the way, I want to repeat, as she said, and as our friend Joe Sandberg has over and over again stated, poverty is not natural. It is socially created. And that observation goes all the way back to Thomas Paine, by the way. How do we get folks like Trump? How do we get these reactionaries? Well, this is how Marianne continues post-World War II children had a 90% chance of doing better economically than their parents. However, children born after 1984 only have a 50% chance of doing better than their parents. In the 1980s, D.C. politicians began their relentless assault on programs like Social Security, food stamps, and other social safety nets. This was a tenet of Reaganism and the advent of this hyper-capitalism, which remains at the core of our social economic policies. In America, Harvey, poverty is in many ways a continuation of segregation. Due to racial imbalances of wealth, Jim Crow policies like redlining continue to have rippling effects long after they have ended. Additionally, generational poverty has reduced the chances of poor people attaining the American dream. Should we as a country turn a blind eye to the epidemic of poverty while we are at a risk of slashing Medicare? kicking millions of Americans off their publicly funded health care? Even now, as protections put in place to address the COVID-19 pandemic begin to expire, many states are planning to remove millions of Americans from their Medicaid plans. This will put poor, low-income families and those with disabilities at risk of losing access to care, exposing them to large medical debt, which serves now as one of the leading causes of bankruptcy. 
Additionally, the federal government Medicaid budget will be cut by 6.2 percentage points, forcing individual states to face budgetary chaos. This is a nightmare that's unfolding, by the way. This is my words, to make it clear. Setting the stage for what the Williamson administration is about to do, this is what she wraps up in this introduction. These government supports that have proven time and again to be successful at staving off poverty for millions of Americans are being cut by Democrats, no less, at a time when rents are spiraling out of control for the poorest families, wages are stagnant due to the assault on unions and working people, while poor people are being preyed on by the rapacious financial institutions via higher interest rates and paralyzing fees. And we have a legal system, Harvey, that traps people in a cycle of poverty for the most minor infractions. The evidence is clear that poverty is multilateral and systemic, whether it be through education, labor, the environment, or healthcare. We must have transformational change in order to save America. Poverty is not natural. It is a policy choice, and we can end it. Well said. Well said. Here's the promise. Declare an unconditional war on poverty and aim to relieve and cure its symptoms in order to find solutions to it. Next, strengthen democracy by urging Congress to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act to enfranchise voters, stop voter suppression, enact automatic voter registration, protect election security, and reform immigration. Restore and make permanent the enhancement of child tax credit. Remember the child tax credit that they passed as part of the American Rescue Plan? Well, they said, bragging about it, this was going to lift half of the kids who were suffering poverty out of poverty. Well, I always wondered, by the way, why they didn't lift everyone out of poverty. Why are they proud of lifting 50%? Why not 100%? The fact is that ran out after a year or so. Does that mean that other half of kids are now falling back into poverty? Maybe. They're saying, let's wipe out poverty. They want to lift the hourly wage, federal minimum wage, to $15 an hour, which probably should be higher, but $15 make a dramatic improvement in a lot of people's lives. Ensure universal rent control and a prohibition on rental deposits. Amen. Fund social housing as part of the Green New Deal to build at least 15 million green, union-built, publicly-owned homes over the next 10 years. This is the kind of thing you would have found if people read, I think we talked about it. Maybe we haven't. We should go back to a. Philip Randall's freedom budget. Yeah, that's something we should do, by the way. The kinds of things that Marianne is proposing is essentially to grab hold of the New Deal and the Great Society and A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin's plans for fighting poverty, eliminating poverty in 10 years. From 1967 to 1977, it would have wiped out poverty. Marianne is going back. It's time that we do this. I'm just taking a look at a few more. Restoring funding for SNAP programs in every state to ensure families have access to food stamps and nutritional needs. Paid family leave and medical leave. Make education affordable. That public one. colleges, both community colleges and four-year public colleges and trade schools must be made tuition-free. Those trade schools will coordinate with organized apprenticeship programs to give students real-world experience. Finally, forgive all federal and privately held student debt including interest. Students are too often burdened with school loans that hold them back from following their dreams. Forgiving all student debt will allow students to work in a career they love, launch a business, or buy a home. Maybe that's a good place to wrap it up. I think you're right, Harvey K. I think it's a great place to wrap. Man, imagine if 
Imagine if a certain president was saying those words using the presidential bully pulpit. Yeah. We don't have that, but I'm happy that we have Marianne Williamson offering some true progressive ideas. I'm moved by these words and I encourage everyone listening, go to this website. I mean, I'm encouraged, Harvey K. What about you? What do you think? Can she win the presidency? That's another question. Will she catch fire? I hope so. Let's hope the TikTok phenomenon becomes a universal phenomenon for Marianne Williamson. It's a message that works. Professor Harvey K., my brother, where can these folks find you on the Twitters? As ever on Twitter, <laughs> it's H-A-R-V-E-Y, initial J-K-A-Y-E. I wish I had the courage to really get into that TikTok. I don't think I do. I need some 13-year-old to explain it to me. Listen, you and me, Harvey K., I think our next venture might be to the TikTok sphere. You just wait, my friend. You just wait. <laughs> I've seen them dance moves, Harvey K. Ooh, you can bust a move, brother. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> we'll chat next week. Maybe doing a freedom budget next week. We'll see. Yeah, we'll talk. We'll talk. Absolutely. Love you, brother.
the KC Morning Show.